We're ready to go? All right. We are in a series that came out of a series I did actually uh, last summer uh, when I kind of covered the end times in a broad perspective. Then we went into uh, um, Matthew, and during both of those, people began to ask for more detail about the second coming and the issues that relate to us in a more messianic perspective. So last week we began that, uh, and I've titled the, the series, What's Next? Waiting for the Kingdom to Come. And uh, we're going to look particularly at the sequences of the events of the second coming, but in order to do that, we need a little bit of uh, background. Last time I spoke about the two things that make this subject really difficult for Christians. One is replacement theology, which has removed Israel from its place in the purpose of God and as central to understanding the events of the end time. Um, the other part is we've missed the point of the gospel. And in that, we've uh, seen the gospel as a call to change the world when it's really a call to separate ourselves from the world in order to be in it but not of it, so we prepare for our own resurrection and the kingdom to come, not to change and transform the world. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about the whole of time and eternity as we consider creation, past, present, and future. I've talked about this several times before, but I want to zero in on why it's critical for us to have this background as we look at the doctrine of last things. So I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 3 through 13. Uh, the apostle is speaking of, last, of the last times. And he says in verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now that text is 
really talking about the end of time when people will begin to become worse and worse. And there will be a mocking of our faith and of our hope. Our hope is that the Lord will return, that he will establish the kingdom, and that righteousness will prevail. And uh, people are going to eventually say, you know, that's not happening. And so what is going to happen by the world is the world's going to say, we can do this ourselves." And within the body itself, within the church or the community of believers, there will be those who say, you know, there's no real sign that this is going to change. Since the fathers fell asleep, everything is exactly the way it was from the beginning. Now, it's interesting that Peter draws on this because in doing so, he's going to talk about the creation in the past, the present creation, and the new creation. And he does it in this way. He first talks about the world at that time. He speaks of the world that was created in the beginning. This is what we read in Genesis. And he calls that world as created out of water and from water. You recall Genesis 1 begins with the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. There was light. And then he separates the land from the water. And so we get this separation of the waters above from the waters below. All of that that is talking about the creation, Peter is addressing um, in the context of that earth. Now, we don't have time to go into the details of it, but I want to remind you that for, for our purposes, the world that was before the flood was a very different heaven and earth than what we have today. First of all, the Bible says there was no uh, rain. So it was Southern California, right? There was no rain. A mist would rise up and would water the earth. And So it's a very different geological system than what we have today. Secondly, if you read about this period, this is the world of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Enoch and Lamech, where people lived almost a thousand years based on the genealogies that we have. So we have a geology that is different. We have a lifespan that is different. It is a different heaven and earth, and yet it is one that had the sons of Seth and the children of Cain who intermarried. I'll do questions at the end. Who uh, intermarried, and then uh, the world was corrupted. That world is going to be destroyed by a flood. We have the account of that flood. And the present world is the one that was populated by Noah and his sons. Peter then tells us about the present world. And he says this one uh, is reserved by the same word to be destroyed by fire at the day of judgment. And at that time there will be the destruction of ungodly men. That is, people who do not fear the Lord. This world is different. There's a shorter lifespan. Certainly there are rain and a different geology. There, we are divided by languages, so-called races and ethnicities. It's a very different kind of world, beginning from Babel, where nations learn war against each other, and the world simply seems to not be able to come to peace. 
Now, there are always peace movements. There are always people who believe that the world can be made better and mankind will be better. Our technology is phenomenal. We have developed incredible technology. But the condition of human beings has not changed. We still have murder. We still have sexual immorality. We still have abuse of people. We still have wars and rumors of wars. That part of the human condition hasn't changed and won't change until the resurrection. Uh, we are resisting that because we are believers, but that is the way of all flesh. And the scripture says that what's going to happen is this heaven and this earth is going to be destroyed by fire. Now it says it will happen at the day of judgment. That's a term that we need to be aware of because we're going to run into this notion of uh, a day of judgment uh, very very much throughout this um, this series. Um, I've missed something here. Let me make sure I get that. Okay, so I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Interesting that in our liturgy we were in the book of Revelation already. In Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 11, and we'll pick it up there and go through the first verse of chapter 21. The scripture says, this is after Satan is released. There is a period where Satan is bound. We'll talk about that later. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away, and there was no place found for them. So this is the removal of the heaven and earth that will be destroyed by fire. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Notice two, two sets of books. There is the books where our deeds are written, and we will be judged for what we have done. That judgment is almost completely lost in Christian theology now. We simply have the book of life. And if you're in the book of life, that's it. But, but the judgment will involve both of those things. They were judged out of uh, the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Notice that the judgment here is about how we've lived our lives. Then it says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is Gehenna uh, that we talk about. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now you and I have a little bit of an understanding of this because as we come up on Yom Kippur, in the back we have a, a scale, a judgment scale, and there are two books there, uh, the books of deeds, and then a red book that refers to the book of life. And that imagery reminds us that there are two aspects to the judgment. One based on how we've lived our lives, 
This is based on the commandments of God. And the other one based on the grace and mercy of God that brings about salvation. Everybody will be judged based on the books with regard to reward and loss. But those whose names are not in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. It's interesting that a person could earn reward and still be cast into the lake of fire. And it's likely that people could not earn reward and still be saved. That's what Paul talks about in Corinthians when he says, Our works will be judged by fire, and if any man suffers loss, he himself will be saved, but he will suffer loss. There have been a lot of sermons over the years by pastors talking about standing before God in your underwear. Everything burns and and there's nothing there but you and you're there by His grace. Now, that's not what we're after. We're after obeying God that we may also have reward, but we never are to think that that uh, obedience to God is going to earn our salvation. Then... We are told in Revelation 21 what Peter talks about, and that is the new heaven and the new earth. So I'll go back to 21 verse 1 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from every eye, and there will no longer be any death, nor will there be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Now, this text is quoting a passage from Isaiah. I want you to look at that because they are somewhat different and they have caused some of the confusion as to what's going to happen at the end. It's Isaiah chapter 65 beginning at verse 17. If I had time, and I don't have time, so I'll suggest it to you, read Isaiah chapter 60 to get the background for 65. This is where we'll see how central Israel is to these prophecies. And I'll talk about those in future weeks. But today I want to zero in on something about this new heaven and new earth. In Isaiah 65 verse 17, God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Clearly that's talking about Israel. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will it be an infant who lives a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. 
For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will the days of my people be. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. And they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, if you do a real quick reading, you could say, okay, Isaiah 65 says that the Lord is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And he talks about Jerusalem and there will be no weeping and no wailing and life will be long. But it doesn't say there will be no death. But the Revelation passage that's quoting this says, there will be no death. Now, we have one of two ways to look at these texts. One is that they are exactly talking about the same thing. And in Isaiah, this idea of long life is seen in its fullness in the absence of death. Or, we can see it as there is some dual setup going on here. And of course, can you guys be a little quieter? Uh, it's, it, it'll be a double setup, and that's where there is a kingdom that will happen on this earth, and that kingdom that is on this earth will be uh, a place where death is extremely rare, limited, but not gone. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where there will be no death. We will see later that the kingdom includes a temple, but the new Jerusalem has no temple. So I believe these are separate things. They're not one thing that's, that's being addressed. So to talk about that, I want to address the three major views that Christians have had about the second coming and the kingdom, and the new heaven, and the new earth. Okay? So, we're going to start with three terms that I want you to become familiar with. The first one is amillennialism. The second one is postmillennialism. And the third one is premillennialism. Now, I wish we weren't using those terms. But we're using those terms because Revelation 20 talks about the resurrection and ruling and reigning for a thousand years. A thousand years is a millennium and that's why these doctrines are tied to that. However, the first one, amillennialism, is a denial that there is a thousand year millennium. So I want to give you a way of remembering these a little easier. Do it this way. Think of these as kingdom Kingdom, every time there's a millennium, think of kingdom. So the first one would be our kingdom, no kingdom. Okay? The second one would be post-kingdom, at the end of the kingdom. And the other one would be pre-kingdom, 
at the beginning of the kingdom. Because in Christian theology, this is about the messianic kingdom to come. And it either won't happen, we'll talk about that in a minute, or it will happen at the end of the reign of Christ, or it will happen at the beginning of the reign of Christ, in terms of when the Lord will come back. So, let me start with amillennialism, because it's the most um, common view historically. Amillennialism believes that the Lord will return at some point in the history, we don't know when, and when He returns, He will destroy this present heaven and earth by fire. And then immediately establish the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. There will be no kingdom on earth. And there will be uh, nothing other than the manifestation of the rule of Christ as ruling through the church. This is the historic view of the Catholic Church, of the Orthodox Church, of Protestant churches... And up until about 100 years ago, maybe 150 years ago, it was the dominant church, uh, view among Baptists. And that was this, that the Lord has ascended into heaven, and he is reigning in heaven, sitting on the throne of heaven. And when he comes back, he's coming back to get us out of here, and he will destroy the wicked with the fire. Then there will be the judgment, and then there will be the new heaven and the new earth. That view requires nothing to happen in the land of Israel and nothing to happen with the Jews. This is a classic doctrine of replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel. Jesus is reigning in heaven, not on earth. And the church then is manifesting that reign on the earth. And that view became very popular and it has a lot of replacement theology as, as part of its uh, framework. There is no kingdom to come, so Israel and the Jews are not a concern about the theology of the end of time. Now, throughout history there was a belief that the Jews would end up dying off and that didn't happen. And so theologians at different times tried to say, well, maybe there's some place for them in there. Uh, but a second view came up that also sees this notion of uh, an error, in, as far as I'm concerned, in the, no in the return of Christ. And that's postmillennialism. Postmillennialism grew out of the belief that as the gospel spread... It made the world better. Remember I said replacement theology is one of the errors. The other error is missing the point of the gospel. It appeared in the early centuries of the church that the church was taking over for the evil of the past and the church would ultimately spread the gospel everywhere around the world and the world will become the kingdom of God. In other words, the nations of the world will become the kingdoms and nations of our God and His Christ, as the book of Revelation says. 
Now, the idea was that that would be done through missionizing and the preaching of the gospel. It would make people become born again. They would raise children who would be raised in the faith. The world would come to light. Christians would begin to take over in various governments. And the kingdom of God would ultimately appear. You can almost get that concept in the... um, mission song, we've a story to tell to the nations. It's in our hymnal. The chorus of that goes, For the darkness shall turn to dawning, and the dawning to noonday light, and God's great kingdom shall come on earth, the kingdom of love and light. Now, the idea here is not the kingdom of Israel, or a restoration of the kingdom of David, as the scripture says. This is Christendom that will spread over all the world until it finally becomes uh, uh, the dominant faith all over the world. This became really popular in the 1800s with the modern missionary movement. And at the same time, medicine was finding new cures and the world was seemingly getting better and better and better. And that doctrine became very popular post-millennialism. The idea is that Christ would rule through the church. The gospel would transform it. And finally, the whole world would welcome Jesus back because things were getting better and better. Then, World War I hit. Then the Depression hit. Then World War II hit. And after that, there were very few people that believed this post-millennial view of the second coming. However, by then the gospel had been changed to being something that would transform nations. And that still remains with us today. The third one is the premillennial view. The premillennial view is actually in some sense the most recent, and it is tied to a concept of dispensationalism. Now what that means is that God worked a certain way with the time of Adam and Eve, He worked a different way at the time of Noah. He worked a different way at the Sinai Covenant. And now we are in the church age. And when the church age is over, there will be a return, if you will, to kind of a Jewish thing with a Jewish kingdom. So this model actually brings the Jews back in. But it works like this. The gospel comes... The Jews get sidelined. We go forward until the end of the Gentile time and the church time, and then we disappear. That's the rapture thing. We all go to heaven. The world gets really angry at God. We're not there to take the punishment, but the Jews are, and they go through a terrible punishment that they, in some sense, deserve because they rejected God. There's an anti-Semitism here. There's an anti-Semitism in the replacement side. There's also a misunderstanding of the gospel. This premillennial view is the idea then that Jesus will come back and establish the kingdom, but the kingdom will be Christendom. It doesn't see it as a kingdom of Israel restored. And that's what I want to talk about uh, later in here. So here's how it goes. The uh, church... 
takes over. So we replace Israel, but not completely. They get sidelined. Israel then will suffer after the church has been removed. And then the Lord returns visibly with the church and establishes a thousand-year kingdom, which we call the millennium. After which, Satan will be released. The nations will rise up against him and he will destroy them with fire. So we're back to the same thing. Everybody ends with this earth ending with fire. It's just different as to how we approach it. Does it just happen at any time and life is over? That's the amillennial position. The world will get better and better and better and then the Lord will come. That's the post-millennial. Or the world is going to start getting worse and worse and worse. When it gets really bad, we'll get out of here and then it'll get even worse. Israel will suffer. Then Jesus will come back and establish the kingdom. It kind of compartmentalizes Israel, but it doesn't keep them central in that, in that place. So, what are we talking about here? That amillennialism is based on replacement theology and postmillennialism is based on missing the point of the gospel. Well, what about premillennialism? Because that's the one that's most popular now among evangelicals. Well, it's kind of a return in the direction of the biblical doctrine, but it doesn't come all the way back. In other words, there's still a significant amount of replacement theology and a significant part of the gospel changing the world uh, in missing the point of the gospel. So, what we need to do is look at this without going through those three lenses, and that's what I'm going to try to do, is I'm going to go back to salvation is of the Jews and Israel is central. We have been added to that rather than we have become the central focus and they're on the side. And I'll start that next week, but before we do that, I want to take a look at the rest of this chapter in Second Peter chapter 3. And pick it up at verse 14. Because I said part of what we need to do is decide why, why do we care about this. Some of us may die before the Lord comes, right? So what's the issue? Well, Peter's going to tell us what the issue is. So, verse 14. Therefore, beloved... Since you look for these things, notice that we're supposed to be watching for this. This you recall in Matthew, Jesus is saying, watch. You don't know when the Lord is coming. Watch for it. Don't be like the foolish virgins who don't have oil in their lamps. Don't be like those who uh, start beating their fellow servants. In other words, there's a, there's a problem when we lose focus on what we're preparing ourselves and our children for, and that is the kingdom to come. If we don't, what happens is we begin to get caught in this world, or we begin to become complacent and half-hearted in what we do. So he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Now, this peace is to be at peace with God, to be at peace with all men, as much as depends on us. That takes some doing. 
Some of us are not as peaceful as others of us. For me, being at peace with people is a little more problematic than for Linda to be at peace with people, right? Then to be spotless, this has to do with holiness. And blameless has to do with righteousness. Not being accused of violating the commandments. And so the reality is we're to be at peace and we're to struggle towards holiness and goodness. Now, this peace provides unity. Holiness provides godliness and holiness. And righteousness makes us blameless. In other words, the three major commandments, love God makes us holy, love your neighbor as yourself makes us righteous, love one another makes us unified in peace. So those are the things that he tells us to be diligent about doing. And he says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. We're going to talk about this. Paul talks about God is waiting and he is working through his purpose and that is taking some time and people were misunderstanding as Paul talked about things and he says, don't get the idea that the day of the Lord is at hand for that day won't come until certain things happen. So Paul had to correct them and Peter is telling them that it's easy for people to be uninformed or to be unstable, and as a result, misinterpret all of the scriptures. So he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall away from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I want you to catch. You guys all know these texts. But we tend to hear them out of context. Growing in grace and in knowledge is related to being prepared for the kingdom to come. We have been called out of the world to establish our homes as outposts of the world. And this congregation as an... I mean, of the kingdom. And this... Congregation as an embassy of the kingdom and to raise our children as citizens of that kingdom so that we are not conformed to the world but transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we will establish ourselves in obeying the will of God. That's the function and purpose. And the gospel gives Israel the knowledge that God is bringing His promises to pass, that's why the gospel is to them first, but it's also to the Gentile that we can join with them through the mystery of the gospel and be part of that kingdom too. We have moved away from that emphasis into several other ways. And I think that it is creating a complacency in us that is kind of fascinating. When I was a young man, there was a belief that Jesus was coming back any minute. And we just were zealous about prophecy and all that stuff. Not preparing for the kingdom. There was no time to prepare. We were preparing to be raptured out any second. Right? 
And so we were trying to get as many people to come with us as possible. The train's leaving. Get on board. I was 18. I'm not 18 anymore. There's been a few decades between that immediate, it's going to happen any moment, to now. And what I'm noticing in this current generation of Christians, they really don't care much about when the Lord is coming back. Because they're going to make the world better. And the Lord will be happy when he comes back and sees what they've done. That's that missing the point of the gospel. And people are beginning to get really irritated about Israel. And anti-Semitism is reinforcing the replacement theology that's going on. So I think we have to rethink this and begin to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus and in knowledge. Now, why do we need to grow in grace? If we just grow in obedience, we're going to begin to think that we are earning our salvation. And the truth is, and you guys know this, we've talked about this a lot, that if we all did twice as much holiness and righteousness as we're presently doing, we would still not be in danger of earning our salvation. Because it's way up here, and, that, and our righteousness is as filthy rags. Right? But that doesn't mean we don't strive towards the kingdom and try to do that. And it has to be done in our homes. There's an article in Christianity Today this week where they are lamenting that children are growing up in the church and when they become teenagers or 20-year-olds, they leave the faith. And they're realizing that the church cannot provide a launching pad to maintain spiritual stability In young people, the home has to do that. And that's why we have worked so hard for that. So that our children will be prepared. They will grow in grace and in knowledge. Our grandchildren will grow in grace and in knowledge. Because they're going to be up against a world that's much more prone to pick them off. When I was growing up, you could almost not tell the difference between a godly Christian and a regular American. There were some pretty rough Americans, but there were a lot of just decent people. And those decent people, for the most part, kind of followed the Christian right and wrong rules. And whether or not they believed in salvation was the only difference. So the gospel was always about, do you believe in Jesus, not are you changing your behavior? Unless you were an alcoholic or terrible and then you'd come through the gospel and all of a sudden, presto, changeo, you'd be okay. okay. That's not the world that our children and grandchildren are living in. They're living in a world that knows nothing about the Lord and nothing about His Word and some of the things that the Scriptures say and that Christians historically say sound to them like hate speech and sound to them like bizarre, old, crazy ideas. And so our children are going to be up against a much greater persecution and threat of assimilation. 
And that's why we've really got to ground them in the idea that the world before passed away and this one will too. We're preparing ourselves for the world to come. And that's what this series is about. So, Peter tells us that we are looking for these things so we should be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. He warns us that people can mistreat the scriptures and then he tells us not to be misled by error or a lack of watchfulness. Instead, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Let's pray.